Like, if it's a Major League Baseball game, I am playing t-ball and I'm striking out. Because God's standard is so stringent and perfect and beautiful, and I live woefully short. And that is not, hey, I'm getting graded on a curve. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, your least favorite politician or whatever. I'm not like them, so I'm okay. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's like, look, this is the standard by which you are judged. As a believer, you have the Word at your fingertips. The Word rightly divides, making it clear what areas of your life need to be transformed. In his teaching today, Pastor Daniel takes us to a church that is well-versed in compromise, in both avoiding and embracing it. God's Word has laser-like focus, bringing the kind of conviction that makes you want to drop everything and fix what needs to be fixed in order to get right with God. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12, with part one of our message entitled, Diagnosis, Don't Compromise. When you think of the word compromise, oftentimes it's actually a really good word. When you think of compromise, like in a marriage, that's a great thing, isn't it? A lack of compromise in a marriage oftentimes means marital destruction. I don't know how many times I've gotten a chance to sit down and you talk with somebody and they start sharing about what's going on and they're like, it's just so challenging being married because I just love the beach so much. And my husband's always like, I don't like the beach. There's sand gets in my toes and stuff. It's nasty. But I love the mountains. And all we ever do is go to the mountains. I just want them one time, just one time. Say, let's go to the beach. And then you sit down, right, of course, and you say, hey, tell the husband, listen, you got to go to the beach every once in a while, bro. Right? Because compromise is good. When you think about what goes on between nations politically, compromise, good thing. You look at our government today. A little compromise would probably go a long way to making life a little bit more livable. Compromise isn't a bad thing. But oftentimes... If you look at compromise in certain areas, compromise is actually the worst thing. It's interesting that a word that could be so positive can also be so negative. Because sometimes we compromise on things we absolutely ought never to compromise on. Like, remember I was talking about in a marriage. Now imagine if a spouse came and said, listen, I, uh, I actually just want to start dating another person even though we're married. At that juncture, compromise is the worst thing. Well, okay, yeah, great, you know. See, you have to decide what the non-negotiables are. We all need to decide what are the non-negotiables. Now, where you go to spend your leisure time, I think that's a negotiable. Right? As long as it's within those proper bounds. But compromise, although a good concept, oftentimes we have to ask ourselves, where are we compromising? And the church that we're going to look at today in this series that we're calling Case Study, the church in Pergamos, their issue is that they've compromised. And Jesus is upset about their compromise. So if you remember, each one of these letters that we're looking at, 
in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches. We've already seen the church in Ephesus where they needed to return to their first love. Two weeks ago, we saw the church in Smyrna. That was a persecuted church. And Jesus said, look, just hang on. And now we're here at the church in Pergamos. And the church in Pergamos, their biggest struggle is against doctrinal compromise, which ends up leading to behavioral compromise. Now, I'm going to put this on the table because I am quite sure that in a room this size, folks in the chapel, people watching online, we all struggle with making compromises on our faith that end up pulling us away from being the people that God has called us to be. So my hope today is that our study is what you would call convicting. And conviction is proof that you're God's child. That's what it is. Conviction is proof that you're God's child because the Lord loves you enough to say, look, yeah, you might be doing that, but I want more for you than that. Now, because my hope is that today's message is convicting, I want to make sure I qualify that what Satan, the enemy of your soul, wants to do is take the conviction of God, the proof that God's like your dad and he's like, I love you and I don't want this for you anymore. Satan wants to take conviction and turn it into condemnation. And what happens when that is, it's the same feeling the Holy Spirit comes and says, ah, see, this is you. You need to amend your ways. You need to change. But then Satan comes and says, because you're no good and God hates you and all these people don't like you and you don't belong in this group of people and all that stuff. Do not, brothers and sisters, listen, do not allow what I believe will be the conviction of the Holy Spirit for all of us in different ways. Do not allow Satan to take what God intends to grow you up do not allow Satan to take it and tear you down, okay? God is not mad at you. God loves you enough to look out for you. I love my kids. I love them, right? And I love them enough not to want to see them hurt themselves. Obadiah, I mean, I love my son. He's totally me. That's why I get my son. He's like an eight-year-old version of me, Right? And it's terrifying, you know. It's like, I, you know, you parents are like, yeah, I used to pray that my kids would get a child just like them so they know what it was like. I got that. My son is totally me. And so Obadiah, I'll catch him just the other day. He's walking out in the backyard. He's got a big axe. You know, and, and so like a little eight-year-old, the axe is half as big as him. And I'm like, Obadiah, what are you doing with the axe? Oh, I'm just going to take care of something, Dad. Hold on, buddy. I'll be honest, I didn't even want to know what he was doing. I didn't even ask, well, what were you going to take? I didn't even want to know. I just knew, Obadiah, I love you. I'm taking the axe, buddy. Now, I do that because I love my son. And my eight-year-old son with an axe, no good comes from that. Like, I can't think of one good scenario, right, with that. Now, I do that because I love my son. Now, don't get me wrong. He's like, oh, dad, you never let me have any fun. Like he's eight. He's like a teenager, right? You never let me have any fun. I'm like, listen, buddy, I know that playing with an axe sounds fun, but no good's going to come from it. So when the Holy Spirit pricks your heart and says, I love you, but what you're doing right now is not becoming of one of my children, don't let Satan take that and tear you down because the whole Christian gospel is that you are flawed and God loves you. And God sent Jesus to die in your place. And because God loves you 
and sent Jesus to die in your place. He's given you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you, pricks your heart and says, look, you're getting off the rails a little bit. So any conviction you feel this morning, Satan's going to want to come and be like, oh, you see that? You're no good. God doesn't love you. You can't really be a Christian. That's all a lie. It's a lie. The truth is, is God never chose you because you're so good. He chose you knowing that you're flawed. And he's like, look, I'm going to do a work in your life. Allow the conviction to motivate us to change, but don't allow the conviction to be turned into condemnation. You'll know you'll feel condemned if you feel like God hates me. I'm not worthy. Okay? So we want to let the conviction be there because it needs to be there. In each one of these letters, remember the checklist that Jesus is using, very balanced. First, he begins with the revelation. This is who I am. Then this is the good that you're doing. You're doing this really well. Then Jesus gets to the bad. This is the struggle point. Then fourth, there's the challenge. Because I love that about Jesus. He doesn't say, okay, this is what you do good. This is what you do bad. Now you're done. He says, look, I challenge you. This is what I want you to do. And then there's the promise to the overcomer. And I believe that if Jesus were to do a case study on each one of us, he'd give us the same thing. This is who I am. This is where you're strong. This is where you need to grow. I challenge you in this way. And this is my promise. If you'll take a step of faith with me, if you'll respond to me. So that's the checklist that we've been seeing. In each one of these letters, they were to local churches when John was inspired to write them in the first century. But they also have a universal application because you notice each letter ends or in, towards the end says, let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what it means is that although each letter was to a congregation that was around in that day, it has a broader application. And so if we have ears to hear, let us hear what the Spirit is saying to us as individuals, us as a church. What is Jesus enjoying? So open up in your Bibles to Revelation Chapter 2, we're picking up our study here in verse 12, the third letter. If it's your first time getting into the Bible, if you have an iPad or an iPhone or an Android, you can just type in Revelation 2.12 and it'll pop up nice and neat for you. But if it's your first time getting into the Bible, just turn it over to the end. And then that's the book of Revelation, the very last book in your Bible. Chapter 2, as always, sits conveniently between chapters 1 and 3. And it's amazing. Verse 12 happens right after verse 11. Yeah, it's good. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you shall hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those, they're those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. Repent, 
or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, notice, it's to the angel of the church in Pergamos. That's verse 12. And we've been saying this, that word angel in the Greek, it's just transliterated in English, it's the word angelos, it means a messenger. So there's a lot of dispute about whether this is an angelic messenger, like the angel as we think about it in the traditional sense, or some would say, and there is an extra biblical literature, the word angelos, if you send somebody with a message for somebody else, that's an angelos as well. So some would say it's the pastor, the bishop. All we know is that this is someone who has authority, caretaking authority over the church in Pergamos. Now, Pergamos, if you remember, I said each one of these letters forms a gentle arch in what is modern-day Turkey. So we saw Ephesus, Smyrna, and now we see Pergamos, which is about 75 miles or 65 miles north of Smyrna. So we're almost at the top of this arch here. Now, notice he reveals himself to the church in Pergamos as he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The sharp two-edged sword. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, the very first thing we get is Jesus reveals himself in this glorious image. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, it says there's a two-edged sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So Jesus says, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword coming out of my mouth. Now, the double-edged sword was a symbol of Roman justice and authority. That's where it comes from. It spoke of Rome, which was the prevailing empire. It spoke of Rome's judicial power, their power to judge right from wrong, good from evil. And so Jesus is saying, I am the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. But you and I realize, because we've read the New Testament, that God's word is a sword. God's word is a sword. God's word delineates for us good from evil, right from wrong, what is acceptable from what is unacceptable. Now, I know some of you in here, in the chapel, watching online, you're thinking, oh, I mean, come on. I mean, it's the 21st century. I mean, you're going to tell me that a book that was written some 2,000 years ago is the authority on what's right and wrong? I mean, the world has changed. Now, I know some of you have that, that critique, and guess what? I identify with that critique because I didn't grow up with this stuff. I didn't have parents who said, listen, God's word is the truth. And so I just bought that critique hook, line, and sinker, just like, oh, yeah, it's like, that's an old book. I mean, when was the last time old truth was truth? The world has changed. I mean, this is before cell phones or phones at all, computers, newspapers. I mean, all, where were all these things? Now, I'm here to tell you this. I want to challenge that critique. And the reason I want to challenge that critique is because people have always been the same 
circumstances and details may be different, but people are always the same. Don't think for one second that the 21st century American in the things of their heart is any different from the first century person in a Greco-Roman culture or a first century BC person in medial Persia or wherever. The human heart has always been the same. People have always been selfish, murderous, lying. We've always done that. We've always wanted to be loved and cared for. We always desire kindness. Humanity, although the details have changed, well, I have a cell phone in my pocket or we're in a large room with air conditioning and we're grateful for some of the detail changes. But the human heart is not different. And you know how you'll know that if you read history? Just study history. Anything that's going on today has gone on in the past. You guys know the old quote, those who do not know history are what? Are doomed to repeat it. Why? Because everything comes back around again. And if you study history, you'll realize that people have always been the same. The same thing goes on. The only difference is now our warfare is with biological weapons and smart bombs. And back in the day, it was with axes and hatchets or muskets. Now you have guerrilla warfare before people just line up and just shoot each other. But war still happens, and it still happens for the same reason. I mean, people are complaining about the government's taxation plan. You know, that happened in our country about 300 years ago. They were complaining about taxation without representation. Now we're complaining about taxation with representation. See, humanity has always been the same. And so God's word, because God created humans, and not only does he know what we are, he knows what he created us to be, the inherent potential that God created within humanity, he can say, look, this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. And for those of you who are saying, oh, well, listen, that's just old school, I challenge you to read the Bible and think about it. Think about the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus says, love your enemies, guess what? That's as important today as it was 2,000 years ago when he said it. But do you love your enemies? No, neither do I. I'm learning. But it's still true. When the Apostle Paul says, live peaceably with all men when it's within your power, is that still true? It is. Don't gossip. (laughs) I mean, Gossip Girl existed long before it was on TV. See, humanity's always been the same. And God's word, if you actually read it with a thoughtful mind, and you can say, okay, look, in this culture, things look like that, but the principles still apply. God's word is a sword. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, for the word of God is living and powerful. Now get this, sharper than any two-edged sword. Going down to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, what that says is that God's word, it's even sharper It it delineates stronger justice than the most just place. And he goes, it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. That's a powerful statement. It's saying that God's word has laser-like focus. 
That's what it means. When it says, what's the division of soul and spirit? I've read lots of books on the science of consciousness, the psychology of consciousness, the spirituality of consciousness, and people who are way smarter than I am have no clue how to divide down between soul and spirit. But God's word does. It's got a laser-like focus. I mean, think about what lasers do. I mean, there was a, back in the day, before lasers, if you needed to get your arm amputated, it was nasty. I mean, you don't even want to think about it, right? Now they can go on down, they can do surgery on your eyes, they just go on in there, just with a little laser. How many of you had LASIK surgery? I haven't. That sounds crazy, but it works, right? And it wasn't painful at all. I mean, someone going into my eye and cutting my things up, that would hurt. But you go on in there with a little laser, it's like, boom. I remember I was talking to the guy about it. He's like, oh, yeah, it's very quick, it's painless, no problem. It's laser surgery. I'm like, God's word's a laser. And God's word, which is a sword, which shows what's right and wrong, it goes right down into our hearts and just like perfect heart surgery. He says, boom, this is where you are. Notice it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. It's like, look, this is what's in your heart. This is the motivation behind the motivation. And that's why when we get into God's word, we start to change really quickly. Because all of a sudden, we start seeing ourselves mirrored back to us by God's living and powerful word. And we start saying, man, I got to grow. It's all about love. I'm not a loving person. It's all about giving and serving. I don't really serve anybody. I actually want everyone to serve me. And then Jesus says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you're like, man. It's an alternative stimuli that teaches a whole new way to be human. That's why God's word's a sword. But what you also have to realize is not only is God's word the ultimate, empowered by the Spirit, the ultimate way to change a person, it is also the benchmark by which each one of our lives are judged. And that, brothers and sisters, is where the rubber meets the road. Right there. That God's word, how our lives stack up to God's word, that is the plumb line for eternity. Right there. And you know what that teaches each one of us? It teaches each one of us that we're in a world of hurt apart from Jesus Christ. Because when you read the word, you realize, as I realize every day, that I fall infinitely short of this. That I am not even in the league. Like, if it's a major league baseball game, I am playing t-ball and I'm striking out. Because God's standard is so stringent and perfect and beautiful, and I live woefully short. And that is not, hey, I'm getting graded on a curve. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler, Jeffrey Dahmer, your least favorite politician or whatever. I'm not like them, so I'm okay. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's like, look, this is the standard by which you are judged. And we all fall so short. And that, brothers and sisters, is exactly why God sent Jesus. Jesus is real. I realize that many of you who are listening to this program have never put your faith and trust in Jesus. And I believe that it's not by chance that you are listening to this program today. I believe actually that God ordained this moment. 
And God also ordained this moment that this would be the moment right where you are right now that you would say yes to Jesus for the very first time. Jesus invited everybody to come and follow him. But only people who said yes got the blessing of seeing all that God was doing through Jesus. And Jesus is inviting you right now to become part of God's family. Jesus has extended his hand to you. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter how many people you've hurt or how many people have hurt you, no matter how bad it is, Jesus is saying, come on, I want you just as you are. I accept you just as you are. I want to forgive you. And I want to do a work in your life. And I want to take you on a journey unlike anything you've ever imagined. Jesus is inviting you right now to take his hand that he can write the rest of your story. And I am encouraging you right now to say yes to Jesus. Say yes, say, Lord, yes, I believe. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Take my life and let your life be lived through me. And I'm here to tell you, if you're doing that right now, this is the most important decision that you've ever made, the best decision you've ever made. And if you're doing that, Jesus will be real in your life unlike anything you've ever imagined. God bless you.